So Psalm 130, starting in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we are so thankful for this beautiful day you've given us. Lord, we're so thankful for this last week where we were able to celebrate, perhaps in unique ways, but celebrate Thanksgiving nonetheless and uh, rejoice in your goodness toward each of us. Lord, we praise you. We honor you today. Lord, we're thankful that we can gather as a church family and once again sing your praises and study your word and fellowship with one another. And we pray you'd bless our time together as a church family and especially our time together in your word. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And before I get into our sermon for this morning, we do have a final new members welcome this Sunday. So we've been welcoming new members into our church over the last five weeks or so. And we have a final new members welcome this morning for a wonderful couple that we're so excited have joined our church family and have become formal members of this church. And as Justin was just pointing out, you know, here at Apostles, we do practice formal membership. And by that, uh, we don't mean that we have kind of a VIP or elite group in the church. Uh, All we mean by that is that as a, a body of Jesus followers here in Santa Barbara, that we actually want to commit ourselves together to hold one another accountable, to encourage each other in our faith, and to support each other as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so membership is the way that we express our commitment to the local church. And so we've had a number of folks join our church as members. And again, we are going to welcome the final couple this morning who have done that. Before I invite Eli and Janelle up, I'm going to read our church covenant. And this is the commitment that we make to one another and before the Lord as a church family. And so just go ahead and uh, pay attention to the covenant on the screen as I read it. And if you're a member of this church, allow this just to remind you of what it means to be a member here at Apostles Church. So here's our church covenant. We commit to living our lives in accordance with the statement of faith of this church, which is the Baptist faith and message printed in the year 2000. We commit to loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and body, and to loving others as we love ourselves. We commit ourselves to the task of continually growing in God's grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We commit ourselves with God's help to living a life that is pleasing to him. And when on occasion we fail in this regard, we will promptly seek God's forgiveness as well as the forgiveness of anyone who we have sinned against. We commit ourselves to not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, participating regularly in the ministry and life of this church. We commit ourselves to clarifying our God-given spiritual gifts and abilities and to faithfully and consistently exercising them to further God's work through this church. We commit ourselves to regularly and cheerfully give a portion of our material goods in the form of our tithes and offerings, 
believing this to be a vital part of our Christian worship. We commit to walking together in brotherly love, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonishing and entreating one another as occasion may require. We commit to supporting and submitting to the spiritual leadership and guidance of our pastors. We commit not to gossip or spread, or spread rather slanderous information about others. And if we fail in this regard, we will promptly seek forgiveness from God and the offended parties. We commit to faithfully remember one another in consistent petitions of prayer and lovingly attend to the needs of all those committed to our care. We commit to bring up those who at any time are under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. As God is our witness, we commit ourselves, admitting our reliance on the Holy Spirit's help in fulfilling this covenant. So that's our church covenant here at Apostles. And um, we are so thankful for this couple that God has brought here to Apostles. Um, I'll say a couple words about them before I invite them and Pastor Ryan up here and we pray for them. But uh, Eli and Janelle Bush are part of the very exclusive group in our church of the COVID married couples. There have been several weddings in our church throughout COVID. And so these young couples getting married during this incredible year and under these challenging circumstances. And I was blessed to be able to officiate their wedding a few months ago. And uh, this couple is just such a blessing to us. Both of them were raised in Christian homes and by godly parents, and both of them committed their lives to following Jesus at an early age. And as a parent, I was encouraged by that, just being reminded that God is so faithful to his people. And as a parent of young kids, it was just an encouragement to me to be faithful and loving and discipling my children. And by God's grace, they, like Eli and Janelle, are going to put their faith in Jesus at a very young age and continue following him for the rest of their lives. Uh, God brought them together uh, a couple years ago now. They met at a New Year's Eve party and uh, through some friends. And they were smitten and started dating and ended up having a long distance relationship and then got married this year, as I said. And uh, they plugged into the church. Janelle serves on our worship team. And the two of them have been such a gift and such a blessing to our local church family. And so we are thankful for you guys. So I'm going to invite Eli and Janelle Bush up here and Pastor Ryan. You can go ahead and give them a round of applause as they walk up here. And family, we're going to pray together for them and just ask God's continued blessing on this young couple. So let's pray together for them. Father, we thank you this day for the many, many examples that we get to witness of your grace toward us. And Lord, this day we are especially grateful for Janelle and Eli. We're so thankful that many years ago you saved both of them, that you called them into a relationship with yourself and that at a relatively young age, both of them made a decision that they wanted Jesus to be the Lord of their life, that they were going to follow you no matter what. And by your grace, they've continued to walk with you for many years. Lord, I thank you that in your goodness, you brought them together a couple of years ago and that they faithfully sought you and your will in their relationship and that they honored you in their relationship. And Lord, we are so blessed that you have brought them together as husband and wife. And now together they're able to honor and glorify you through marriage. 
Lord, we thank you that they're a part of this church family. We thank you for the gifts that they bring. And Lord, we are so thankful for their love, not only for you, but their love for Apostles Church and for the members and the people of this congregation. Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless them. We pray that you would watch over them. We pray that you would strengthen their marriage, that they would have a healthy, happy marriage. And Lord, we pray that we as a church family would continually be reminded of them and keep them in prayer and that we would love them and serve them and support them as our brother and sister in Christ. So Lord, we love you and we love the bushes and we pray that you would bless them as they are such a blessing to us. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you guys. All right, Psalm 130. I should get there myself. That'll make this a more interesting sermon. Psalm 130. And as was, was pointed out, this is the beginning of the Advent season. This is week one of the Advent season. And the word Advent, uh, if you don't know it, it just simply means coming or it means arrival. Coming or arrival. And so the focus of the entire season of Advent is the celebration of the birth of Jesus at his first advent and the anticipation of the return of Christ at his second advent. And so this means that advent symbolizes the spiritual journey of individuals and also the spiritual journey of congregations as they affirm that Christ has come, that he is present in the world right now, and that he will come again in power. And that's really what Advent is about. Now, there are four Sundays in Advent. This is the first, and uh, the final Sunday will be December 20th, leading up to the week of Christmas there. And the four Sundays of Advent allow us to journey together in celebration and anticipation. And the way that we're going to use the four Sundays of Advent this year is that we're going to take an in-depth look each week at four of the Advent themes. And so, Each week, we will spend the entire sermon looking at one of four Advent themes. And those themes are going to be hope, peace, joy, and love. And so this morning, we're going to look together at the theme of hope and how it relates to the Advent season. Okay, so hope, here we go. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew terms that are translated hope or that describe hope. And the first word, yakal, means basically to wait for something, to wait for something. So sort of like waiting for the next season of the year, or probably for a lot of us, waiting for 2020 to end. Um, It's this idea of just waiting for something, yakal. The second word in the Hebrew is kavah. And kavah is related to the word kav, which means cord. So think of a long cord that you can stretch and when you take a cord and you, and you pull on it and you kind of tighten it, what you do is you create tension in the cord, right? And if you continue to pull and pull and create more and more tension, that tension continues until eventually the cord will snap and it releases all of the tension. There's this kind of state of release. And so from a biblical standpoint, kava is this feeling of tension and expectation as you are waiting for something to happen. Now, I've officiated more than one wedding in which there was a significant break between when the bridal party got up and got in place 
and then when the bride herself actually entered in. And so the music is playing and I'm standing there to officiate and the groomsmen and the bridesmaids all come up and they get in their position and then we're waiting and we're waiting and we're still waiting. And all of a sudden you can tell as the pastor, as the officiant, that there is tension and expectation in the crowd. There's kava there in the crowd. And then eventually she comes and all is well. In biblical Hebrew, hope is about waiting and expectation. And this is what we find in this beautiful psalm, Psalm 130. We find waiting and expectation. We find biblical hope. Now, hope is used in verses 5 and 7. You see it there. The word hope is used there. And also, verses 5 and 6 are about waiting. Look carefully at verse 6, and you'll further notice that it's an expectant waiting. The psalmist there there says in verse 6, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. So the picture there is of a watchman on the city walls. Looking out throughout the night, he's guarding the city. And and there's this expectation and this anticipation about when the sun is going to rise. And the psalmist says, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Hope then is about waiting and expectation. Okay, so when the people of God then are filled with hope, what are they waiting for? Look at verse 5. He says, I wait for the Lord. Look at verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord. Then in verse 7, hope in the Lord. Family, here's the key this morning for understanding biblical hope. Here's the key. This is significant. Biblical hope is in a person. Biblical hope is in a person. My former pastor used to say, hope has a name and it's Jesus. The Bible Project noted that biblical hope then is not mere optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see in any situation how circumstances could work out for the best. So the optimist is looking at the circumstances or the situation saying, okay, maybe there's a way that this could actually still turn out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize that there's no evidence that things are going to get better, yet they choose hope anyways. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner echoes this idea when he writes of verse 6, and I quote, Notice that this is more than wistfulness or optimism. In plain terms, the psalmist speaks of a promise, his word, to cling to. And in picturing the watchman, he chooses as his simile a hope that will not fail. Night may seem endless, but morning is certain and it's time determined, end quote. So biblical hope is not mere optimism. It is hope based on promises and promises are always made by a person. Thus, biblical hope is in a person. Now, in the days of the prophets, when the nation Israel was sinking in self-destruction, Isaiah said this in Isaiah 8, 17. Here's the great prophet. He says, I will wait for the Lord. 
who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will kavah, or hope, in him. See, Isaiah knew that the reason why the Lord was hiding his face from Israel, the reason why things were falling apart in the land was because God was judging Israel for her sin. And so Isaiah the prophet knew their only hope was in the Lord, that the Lord would need to remedy their sin problem and extend forgiveness. And so it is with the heartbroken worshiper here in Psalm 130. He is crying out to God from the depths. We read that in verse 1. He says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Now, this is a place of deep distress. This is a place of deep despair. He's in anguish as he writes these words. Out of the depths I cry out to you. And what was the cause of this great despair in his soul? Was it fear of his enemies like we see in some of the other Psalms? No. Is it financial ruin? No. Is it sickness or the death of a loved one? No. It's guilt for his sins. We see that in verse 3. He writes, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? What's he saying? He's saying, God, if you were to play accountant, and you were to actually sit and tally up all of my sins, I could never stand in the day of judgment. We would all be toast is what he's saying. We would be left without hope if that's how things worked out. God just tallied up your sins and judged you accordingly. So the thing that is causing this despair in his heart is is guilt over his sins. He realizes that many times he's broken the law of the Lord. Even though God loves Israel, even though God blessed Israel, here is this Israelite worshiper who many times in his own life has gone away from God and turned his heart far from the Lord and sinned against God. And so he's crying out to the Lord from this place of desperation and despair. And the reason he cries out to the Lord, even though he's guilty of sinning against the Lord, is because he knows God to be a forgiving God. That's what we read in verse 4. He says, But with you there is forgiveness. With you there is forgiveness. He knows God to be a forgiving God, and so he waits for him. Not the kind of waiting, like waiting for the seasons to change. The kind of waiting, like a group of family and friends waiting for the bride, to enter the wedding. And the reason for this expectant waiting is because he knows God to be a merciful God. Now the question becomes, how does he know that about God? How does the psalmist know in the core of his being that God is in fact a merciful God? Where does this knowledge come from? The answer is from the scriptures, from the word of God. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, in his word, I hope. The psalmist was able to look to the word of God and come to the understanding that God was merciful. Not only that, look at the other attributes of God that he's aware of in verse 7. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Those are some amazing attributes. Steadfast love. It's the kind of love that all of us are so desperate for. 
A love that's not dependent on our performance. A love that's something that we can't lose. It's steadfast. And not only does he see God's steadfast love, but his plentiful redemption. That God is the type of redeemer, that he has an abundance of redemption available. Really anyone who wants redemption from the Lord can come and expect to receive it. So where did he learn that about God? Well, again, the answer is the word. The psalmist could go back to the book of Genesis in the very beginning, and he could look at Genesis chapter three and say, you know what? God was merciful to Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve had nothing but goodness given to them from the hand of the Lord. And yet when you get to Genesis chapter three, despite God's loving kindness and his generosity and his intimacy that they were enjoying, they chose to question God's goodness and they decided that they, they were going to agree with the serpent that God was holding out on them. And they chose to eat of the one tree that God said not to eat of and they sinned. And in that moment, God could have, in his justice, struck them dead and hit the restart button. We'll just try this again. I'll get a couple people who really know how to listen. But he didn't. We read in, that, in Genesis chapter 3 that the Lord covered their sin with animal skins. And in Genesis 3.15 is the first prophecy that from the seed of the woman would come one who would ultimately crush the head of that serpent. And so God's judgment would fall not on Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, but God announced that his judgment would ultimately fall on the serpent, the serpent of old, the devil. And so the psalmist could read that story and go, wow, the Lord was merciful to Adam and Eve. Not only that, he could move on to Genesis 16. Look to the father of the faith, the one that should be the example to all of us of what a follower of God looks like. And in Genesis chapter 16, remember that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, who were promised that their descendants would be more numerous than all of the stars of the sky, and yet they're old and barren. So they take matters into their own hands. And Sarah takes her maidservant, Hagar, tells her husband, why don't you sleep with her and have a child through her? so that we can kind of help God accomplish his purposes in the world. And so Abraham does, and they take matters into their own hands, and a child is born named Ishmael. Now God could have said, you know what, Abraham, forget you. I promised you everything, and you didn't trust me. I'm done with you. I'm going to start with somebody else. And he didn't. God showed them mercy, and God allowed Sarah to conceive, and through Sarah, they had Isaac. He could look at the story of Moses, the children of Israel in the book of Exodus. And here they are enduring cruel slavery for 400 years under the pharaohs of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 2, the last verses, we, we read that the children of Israel are crying out to the Lord in their despair. And the Lord heard their cry. And so the Lord raises up Moses to be a deliverer and he delivers them from Egypt and they cross through the Red Sea and God shows abundant mercy to his people. And so the psalmist in Psalm 130 can look to God's past acts for present hope for future mercy. He could look to God's past acts in the scripture for present hope of future mercy. And that's the way that it still works for us. See, the early Christians were people who were filled with this exact same type of hope. The early Christians realized that in Jesus, God had put his steadfast love on full display 
and had brought complete redemption from our sins. Here, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Paul writes this, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Now you want to talk about steadfast love. Verse 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so Paul, this apostle of Christ, could announce in Romans chapter 5 that God's love is generous and marvelous and was put on display for all time through the death of Jesus for sinners like you and me. Paul could go on in Ephesians 1.7 to speak of the plentiful redemption that Christ offers to us. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And see, so for the Apostle Paul and the other New Testament Christians, they were able to say the same thing as the psalmist here. That if we were to turn to the Lord, if we were to hope in the Lord, that we would find him to be a merciful God. That we could expect him to be a God who will forgive us of our sins and give to us plentiful redemption and demonstrate steadfast love. See, the early Christians, just like this psalmist, They looked back to the cross in order to look forward. Their hope was anchored in a person, the person of Jesus Christ, and they could look back to the cross and that would give them the hope to look forward. But their hope was not just in the cross. Let me say more. Their hope was not mainly in the cross. Their hope was actually mainly in an empty tomb. The Apostle Peter, interestingly, calls our hope, your hope if you're a Christian, he calls your hope a living hope. This is 1 Peter 1.3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Family, listen. Because Christ is alive, the Spirit is within us, and we are filled with hope. And yet, our hope is characterized by both tension and expectation. Kava, there's that tension as you're pulling on that cord. We, our hope, as we're living in this world right now, is marked by both tension and expectation. Romans chapter 8 speaks of this. Listen to this profound passage of scripture, starting in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See, Paul is saying, even though we've put our faith in Jesus, even though we're filled with the Spirit right now, 
there is this inward groaning inside the heart of a believer. And in fact, all of creation is sort of groaning along with us right now because things are still not exactly the way they're supposed to be. Things are still broken in this world. Things are still broken in your human experience. And because of that, we know that even though we have the Spirit, we know that there is still more redemption out in front of us. And so we wait eagerly. This is the Christian hope. For 2,000 years now, Advent has been a season of hope. Looking back at God's steadfast love that was put on display at Christ's first Advent, and looking forward with this eager expectation, this sort of tension and expectation of Christ's second advent when he comes to return in power and glory. Now, because ours is a living hope, Jesus makes it multifaceted. I'm not going to read the passages, but I'll put them on the screen for you. In Christ, listen to this, we have the hope of eternal life. That comes from Titus 1-2, also Titus 3-7. You can look that up later. We have the hope of righteousness. We see that in Galatians 5, 5 and 6. We have the hope of salvation, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. And we have the hope of glory, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and Colossians 1, 27. I mean, think about that. For those of us who are putting our hope in this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have hope of eternal life, hope of righteousness, hope of salvation, and the hope of glory. This Advent season, we should look back so we can look forward. We look back at God's faithfulness to provide redemption through Jesus 2,000 years ago. And we look forward to God's promise to bring about our complete redemption at the resurrection when Christ returns. Perhaps you're heading into Christmas at a lower low than you can remember in a long time. Maybe ever. And honestly, that wouldn't be all that surprising. It's 2020 after all. Maybe as you look at the circumstances of your life right now, it's hard to be anything but a pessimist. Because you look at the circumstances and you think to yourself, I cannot see how these pieces that are all broken apart right now could possibly be put back together in a way that makes my future here on earth better than my past. Well, if that's where you're at this morning, then Advent can be balm for your weary soul. Because Advent reminds us that as the people of God, we choose not to focus on circumstances, but to focus on a person. And that's why we never tire of rehearsing the story of a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Because the story of the baby being born in the manger led to the man upon the cross. And the man upon the cross led to a tomb that was no longer occupied. And that tomb that is empty swings wide a door of hope for every person who is in Christ. To quote the Bible Project once again, as Christians, we wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward, end quote. 
And because of that, we know that the words of Jeremiah ring even more true for us than they did for his original audience. When Jeremiah famously wrote in chapter 29, verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Please pray with me. Father, we are so thankful for the hope that we have in you. God, we know that apart from your word and apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this world and this life that we're living would be full of nothing but disappointment, of relational strain, of economies falling apart, of disease, of interpersonal conflict. Lord, we just know that our human experience would be let down after let down after let down. And then to think that it would all just conclude in death, going back into the earth, and that's the end of it. This is all we ever had. Lord, it would cause us, if that were true, to, like the psalmist, live in a place of despair. So Lord, we're so thankful today that as the children of God, we have these amazing promises from your word. Promises that you, Lord, the creator of this universe, are not some distant, unconcerned God. You're certainly not an evil, angry, malevolent God. But rather that with you, there is forgiveness. That with you, mercy can be found and experienced. The guilt that we all feel for our sins can be removed because Christ bore our sin on the cross. And we can be filled no matter what our circumstances are like in our life right now. We can be filled with a living hope because Christ is alive even now and the Spirit is among us. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us as we navigate through the next month and as we work our way toward that great celebration on Christmas Eve as we consider the birth of Christ. We pray, Lord, that this month would be one that we embrace the tension and the expectation that is part and parcel for the human experience this side of the resurrection. So, Lord, I pray that we'd be able to hold that tension when things aren't exactly how we want them to be in our lives, and that we would not be given to despair, and that, Lord, with every disappointment on this side of the grave, that, Lord, you would fill us with a renewed sense of eager expectation, not for everything to turn out perfect in the here and now, but eager expectation of your return, Jesus, where you will once and for all make all things new. We love you, Jesus. We rejoice in your love for us today. Please bless us as your, as your people. Fill us with a sense of faith, and awe and wonder, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.